brought to you by the good folks at Guadney Buick GMC, next to Sam's in North Little Rock. This is Guadney Unplugged with Scott Romine. Hey, Scott Romine here. We're talking with my brother from another mother, Jeb Burnett. He has a business out in Little Rock called ArmTac, and he makes really, really cool things like suppressors and silencers and gun parts and all kind of he can really do anything but he knows a lot about corvettes and all that sort of thing as well <laughs> so did you grow up here in little rock i did i uh actually grew up in the heights uh of all places and uh graduated from hall high school went to u of a uh, and asu as a matter of fact so yep i've been here all my life all right so i'm gonna make you prove that in the heights they had an unusually colored fire truck what color was it I believe it was yellow. Yes, it was. <laughs> and it was uh and, and it was the one on Kavanaugh. Yeah, uh, and it yeah. was the only yellow fire truck around. <laughs> and my sure aunt used to like take my hot wheels or my power wheels yep. and let those guys put them together. Those guys were really cool at that fire station. Um they love kids. Uh my grandparents actually lived uh up on Country Club and and they that fire station that was that was where all the kids in the neighborhood hung out. But yeah, that was uh, that was the Cavanaugh fire, fire station, and they did. They had a yellow yep. fire truck. You remember Bud Hewitt's dime store? Yes, I Wasn't sure that, do. All, all my Star Wars guys come from that store. <laughs> well, and a lot of us Star Wars guys either saw it in the Cinema 150 oh, or yeah. the Heights Theater. Oh yeah, I saw it in the Cinema 150. Yeah, I did too. 16 times. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I think my mom and dad. I was like four years old. My mom and dad weren't real big sci-fi fans, but uh, but yeah, I I went saw it a couple of times. A New Hope when it when it came out in '77. So we're kind of showing yeah. our we're kind of showing our age, Scott. But I mean, you could not beat going to Casa Bonita and then walking across the parking lot and seeing Star Wars. There's nothing better than that. It doesn't exist. Uh, man, I need a little flag for some sopapillas right now, man. If <laughs> we had one, I know. I'd, I'd be raising it. So I grew up, my aunt lived in the Heights. So I spent my weekends in the Heights, and but I lived in Rose City. Mm-hmm. And you, we. We have that same connection because you go on to work for Don Hill mm-hmm. of the famous Don Weaponry. Yep. Tell me about working with Don and what you really learned from him. I started working for Don uh, when I was in high school, really when I was about 16 years old. Um, and Don Hill was probably uh, the greatest retail firearm sales guy ever, uh, certainly in Arkansas, maybe, period. Um, I learned a lot from Don. Uh, Don was uh, Don was my other dad. Uh, you know, when when you're a teenager and you're early and through your early twenties, um, you don't think your dad, your own dad, knows anything. And <laughs> uh, so Don Hill was my other dad, and Don didn't teach me anything that my own father didn't teach me, um, which I came to realize when I was when I was a little older. But Don wasn't my dad, so I listened to him. Uh, but I learned a lot in the firearm business because of Don, um, both in the retail aspect, uh, which is why I am not in the retail (laughs) firearm business. I'm actually a manufacturer. Um, I learned a lot from Don and, um, because of Don, I was able to acquire a lot of really, really neat things at a, at a fairly, um, you know, at a fairly young age that, that people my age now, you know, are trying to get their hands on. So, um, man, I learned a lot from Don, and and I worked from Don from about 1990 through 
96 and then uh, after uh, actually went into the commercial real estate business uh, after college but I would go and work for Don on weekends uh, after he opened the range and probably still worked for him off and on from about 98 99 through 01 or 02. I guess he passed away just a few years he ago. He passed away in 2018. Uh, he did. Um, he had a um, um, he had a very unexpected brief illness, which was uh, pretty shocking because he had ridden uh, his motorcycle all across the United States just two weeks prior. And uh, yeah, it was a really sad deal, man. It was it, it was like losing a family member. Uh, yeah. I'm, I miss Don a great deal. Um, I would. Uh, I would still call Don and get advice from him, even you know, even up to uh, up to the time of his death. But yeah, I'm, I miss Don a lot. Uh, his grandsons, uh, Jacob and Josh, have uh, have taken over the store, and and his um, his daughter Kim, as well. And they're doing a good job. Uh, yeah. They really are. Um, so I, yeah, but uh, but I I cherish my time at Don's. Uh, I really do. About the time you were working for him, I mean, I'm in high school, like '91, mm-hmm. and yeah, we're we're within yeah, a year of each other. Oh, sure. Yeah. And so I had this little TV show on cable access, and Don was frequently a guest, mm-hmm. and he would come to the school, and kids in high school would go back and forth through the trunk of his car, bringing machine guns into <laughs> North Rock High School, so he could talk about them yeah, on the show, and absolutely. nobody thought anything about it. Nobody thought anything about it back then. Uh, we didn't have uh, people weren't crazy. Yeah, there'd never I, been I mean, a school I, I, shooting I or any of I that. I just don't. You know, I, that's the only thing I could. People weren't crazy. Yeah, um, we we didn't have uh, we didn't have school shootings and stuff like that. Um, you know, I went to Hall High School, and you know, I graduated in '92, and and we had. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for a pickup truck to be in the parking lot with a with a hunting shotgun in the, yeah. in the back, and that wasn't that. That was thirty years ago. That wasn't that long. Ago. Yeah, yeah. And I graduated ninety two. We had our thirtieth. Yeah, yeah but I, reunion. I had my, yeah had my thirtieth. Okay, so we're the exact same age because yeah. I graduated. Uh, we had my thirtieth anniversary or thirtieth reunion uh, this past summer. So, yeah, I went. I was the one that still had hair. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> Except on my face. So as a kid, you had something I would have killed for. You had a real Jimmy Lyle first I, blood knife. I did. And you still have it. I do. So tell me, tell us the value of that, what that is, and how you got it I as honestly a kid. have no idea what the current value on it is. I would say somewhere in the $5,000 range, but it's um, uh, a guy named um, Innsminger used to run a... Um, Used to run the kiosk in Park Plaza Mall that sold knives. Do you remember I kinda, that? I kind of yeah. remember that. He I think a, McCain Mall had one too. I, I think he did, and Ensminger owned that one too. Yeah. And well, Ensminger and my dad were good friends. My dad was a big commercial real estate guy, and uh, anyway, Ensminger and my dad were good friends, and uh, I wanted one of those knives. Oh, well, it's a Rambo knife. Yeah, of it's course. a Rambo knife. I wanted one of those knives, and he wound up getting Ensminger, who was a friend of Jimmy Lyle's, to get me one of those knives. And I have one of the first blood knives. It's one of the the, uh, the original ones. 
and the green uh, handle green handle um in fact i had to rewrap it several times um mine is not what you would call pristine condition because it was given to an 11 year old kid <laughs> yeah i have thrown it at things i have um made it into a spear like in first blood and tried to stab stuff oh, of with course. it yeah um, mine is actually what I would consider fairly rough, but, um, it's there. It's, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a cool knife, man. Yeah. It really is. Um, I will, um, I've got to pull it out of my, I've got to go find it. It's somewhere stuffed in the back of a safe. At my Every kid house. in 85 wanted one and you Everyone, actually had yeah, one. I actually wound up getting one. And, and I've, I've actually, I've, I've got a couple of Jimmy Lyle knives. Uh, I've got a, uh, uh, I've got a little coffin-handled folder that belonged to uh, an uncle of mine uh, that passed away, and we liquidated his. Uh, he had a pretty significant firearm collection and and knife collection, and we liquidated his firearm and knife collection. And I wound up, I, I kept that, uh, I kept that little coffin-handled folder, which is a really cool knife as well. But yeah, I had a, um, I had a first blood knife. It's pretty cool. Yep. It is, and it it's pretty cool. Kind of an Arkansas <laughs> claim to fame. It is kind say? of an Arkansas. It is, uh, like we were talking the other day, uh, people don't realize uh, Arkansas is, is mecca for a couple of things. One is knife making. Um, you know, the Bowie knife and the Arkansas toothpick, they were they were originated here um, at the old Arkansas fort. Um, and then you've got Jimmy Lyle. Um, we've got some significant knife making here. And then we're also combat pistol mecca. We're the... We're the uh, uh, they shoot the Bianchi Cup finals at Fort Smith at the old Fort Gun Club. Uh, IDPA is headquartered here. Uh, we've got Wilson Combat, Nighthawk, Guncrafter Industries. Um, we've we've got just uh, we've got arm pack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course got, we do. Yeah, so we've uh, the the state is uh, the state's really becoming known for for a couple of things in in sporting categories and and firearms and, and knives have uh, have pretty pretty much been along the longest. Knives for a long time, but oh, the yeah. firearm industry really specifically in the last probably 20 years. Um, Wilson has been here forever. Um, Bill's Bill's originally from Berryville. Um, and then Nighthawk is, is, there's a backstory to it, but it's, it's one of those deals. I'm pretty remiss about updating it, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, armtacusa.com. There is another Armtac. They're Canadian. They make, uh, they make firearm magazines. We are not that one. We are the Armtac USA, A-R-M-T-A-C-U-S-A.com. But if you really want really good information on our company and to see all of our products, because like I said, I'm pretty remiss about updating my website. Uh, our Facebook page at Armtac Guns uh, on Facebook is probably the best place to find information. You know, I want to ask you, Jeff, everything today that we use is just disposable, and that's like how it's designed. So coming with that it's it's almost like impossible to even find a gunsmith today it is so it w- is. what has created that just no one learning there's no one training or or i think that's a pretty big part of it um i i think we're just a disposable commodity you know uh society now uh, i blame the polymer guns glock it's your fault um <laughs> i mean you know as good as they are as great as they are um it's a disposable handgun. Um, people don't, and you've lost a lot of, you have really lost a lot of the, um, the pride and workmanship. Um, you know, Colt discontinued the Python in 2005. 
and I'm sorry, not 1995. Uh, it ran from 1955 to 1995. And the reason that they discontinued the Python is the Python was all handmade. And all of the gunsmiths that made the Python. Um, they're all passed now. They're all dead now. Yeah. And But in 1995, they were retiring. Mm-hmm. And um, so you see that across the board in a lot of things. And, you know, new modern manufacturing techniques have, uh, ha- have taken a lot of the need for some of this away. We have... Uh, we have very good investment casting now. Ruger is uh, Stern Ruger is is you know the world's best in in investment casting, not just in firearms but all around. They just are extremely good in that. But then you have metal injection molding now mm-hmm. uh, components, which which makes a it makes a very good precise component. Is it as good as a uh, forged tool steel component? No, absolutely not. Um, it's the MIM stuff isn't modifiable, um, but it has increased production capacity a great deal. It has lessened cost, and a lot of what you're seeing now is, is just a direct result of, of increased manufacturing um, processes that uh, that have uh, that have lessened the expense of things. And I'm you know I'm one of those people that I, I think things are cheap now. I think they're cheaply made, and and it's unfortunate. Um, there are obvious exceptions to that, but um, they're not making pre sixty four Winchester Model seventies anymore, uh, and there's a reason for that. Yeah. They're 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 not making the original Colt Python anymore. I don't care what Colt calls the new one; it's not a Python. <laughs> it's not. The uh, it is not a Python. It's got MIM components in it. It's it's just it's not a handmade gun. And um, I shot competitively with a Python and IDPA stock service revolver. So I'm uh, I'm one of those weirdos that actually shoots those. Uh, but you just you don't see the. Um, you don't see the pride in workmanship that you used to yeah. see. Yeah. I remember when Smith and Wesson, like on a revolver, used to put the round in and it was recessed, so you couldn't see the lip of the bullet. Yeah, pin and pin and recess. Yeah, yeah. it's that, yeah. they quit that years ago. They did. They sure did. Uh, pin and recess guns, or um, they're a pin and recess K or L frame. Now is uh, is a collector piece. Um, I've got several of them. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a couple yeah, of them. Yeah, they're. Uh, but yeah, they're they're man, they're great guns, and yeah. they just don't make things like that anymore. And it's really, you know, it's really unfortunate. But at the same time, I mean, I understand it's it is, it's the way the world is going. Um, we don't do that here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't do that. Do things the right way. We do things the right way. Um, all of our products, and and as you said, I I'm a silencer manufacturer. In fact, uh, according to the ATF, at least at the last I checked, I'm the largest silencer manufacturer in Arkansas, uh, and there are a couple more. Um, but uh, you know, all of our stuff carries a lifetime warranty. Can you kind of dispel the the myth of silencers? I mean, people see these on movies. Well, they're not. Technically, if you want to get technical about it, it is a suppressor. It doesn't silence anything. Right, okay, they, exactly. Um, um, however, if you put suppressor on your ATF Form 4, they will kick it back because they call it a silencer. So we go with the ATF language of silencer. Um, I can dispel a lot of myths. They don't sound like – you can't put a silencer on a high-powered rifle and it sound like it does in a Hollywood movie. It doesn't sure. go pew. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it sounds like a gunshot. Yeah. Um, now, I can take a three hundred eight rifle 
and make it sound like an unsuppressed 22 rifle, which is a significant. Oh, that's big. That is a significant decrease. That's that's between 30 and 35 decibels reduction on sound because a 308, a 16 inch 308 rifle, let's say an AR-10, is 165 decibels, and I can take it down to 135. So that's 30 decibel reduction. Um, that is significant. A typical 22 long rifle rifle shooting high velocity ammo uh, is right at 140 decibels. So I can take your 308 and make it quieter than a 22 rifle. Um, but it doesn't go pew. now. Are there guns that we make that do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we, we specialize in, in integrated or integral silencers and, um, among our most popular are rim fires. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, Ruger 1022s and, um, CZ, uh, bolt action rifles among others and in, in 22 long rifle. And those are, are what we call Hollywood quiet. Um, they really do sound, um, uh, like they do on the movies, if not quieter. Um, very, very, very quiet. We're talking in the 100, 105 decibel range, which is insane. It varies greatly what caliber you're trying to deal with, correct? Yes and no. Um, obviously, a twenty two uh, being a, a lower-pressure cartridge, um, slower velocity, is significantly easier to suppress than a high-powered rifle cartridge that has... 60,000 copper units of pressure in the cartridge. Um, but at the same time, a 308 with a silencer on it and a 300 Magnum, which is significantly more powerful than a oh, 308, yeah. are almost identical in, uh, in decibel readings. Um, so the efficiency, yes, there's, there's, a, there's efficiency differences in... Um, in the calibers, barrel length makes a big difference. The longer the barrel, the quieter it's going to be because it's uh, you have less muzzle pressure. And muzzle pressure is really what you're trying to control when you suppress a firearm. Um, you have preceding and proceeding gases, and, and that's, that's what you're trying to slow down, capture, and make quiet. It's a muffler. It's a muffler. That's in, And if you want to get down to the historical aspects of it, um, the same man that designed the firearm silencer uh, it was Hiram Percy Maxim, who is the son of Hiram Maxim, who's the inventor of the first true full automatic machine gun, the Maxim gun. That's right, the Maxim gun, yeah. Well, his son, Hiram Percy Maxim, is the inventor of the firearm silencer. Coincidentally, he is also the inventor of the internal engine combu- uh, internal combustion engine muffler. <laughs> so that. he is, yeah, and it's really funny. Like, my best friend is... Uh, we're, my best friend and I are in the same business. Um, I mean, he uh, he runs an exhaust shop. It's the same business. He's a muffler guy, man. <laughs> I run an exhaust shop. I'm a muffler guy, too. I just yeah. put mufflers on firearms. Yeah, same. So same, it's, same it's same the exact same concept. But, yeah, if you want to get down, down to the historical aspect of it, the same guy that invented the, the uh, firearm silencer also invented the, the muffler for an internal combustion engine. That's awesome. So, Throw yeah. the website out there. We've got to take a break with – armtacusa.com or at armtacguns on facebook didn't some suppressors at one time had like wet wipes in them uh they did and they're actually kind of making a comeback a little bit we actually make one uh called the covert uh that is actually a little bitty three inch long 22 size actually a 25 caliber silencer um and it is a it's a traditional baffled silencer but but it is capable of running uh is not only capable, it was designed to run both wet, 
which is the addition of a liquid ablative, um, grease, water. I've poured beer in them, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> we've probably put other things in them we're not going to mention. but and it uh, works. It works. Ext- uh, a, a liquid ablative is probably one of the most effective things that you can add to certain silencers to make them quieter. But the wipe is uh, the wipe is basically a rubber disc or a polyurethane disc that further closes off the suppressor. And it is a, uh, it's a consumable. Um, you only get eight or 10 shots out of a wipe, but you can run like our covert. You can run both wet and wiped. And uh, man, it's, you know, that's the perfect thing for going into an Italian restaurant and dealing with your problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, um, it is ridiculously quiet on a 22 pistol or a, uh, or a 25 caliber pistol. It is, it is, it's absolutely Hollywood quiet, mouse poot quiet as we call. Yeah. 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 So can you explain for the people that, that read the internet? I've seen this on the internet a hundred times. What is a solvent trap and what was the idea <laughs> with that? Um, that's a way of, uh, skirting the national firearms act laws. Uh, the solvent trap, the idea behind the solvent trap officially is uh, an oil filter or some a fuel filter or some other thing with an adapter that you can thread onto the end of your gun. And when you clean your gun from the uh, the breech to the muzzle, it will capture the uh, the solvent and the everything else. Well, the problem with that is if you shoot a hole through it, you have a silencer then. Really? Yeah, you really do. And we see a lot of problems. And one of the things that uh, that that the industry is trying to get um, addressed through ATF is uh, these Chinese companies bringing in these these solvent traps, fuel filter adapters. Yeah. Scott, you and I know cars pretty well. I can tell you there is nothing on any automobile anywhere manufactured in the world that has a half by 28 or a five eighths by 24 thread on it. So if you have a fuel filter with a half by 28 thread or a five eighths by 24 thread, it ain't for an automotive use. Yeah. Um, it, it's it again. It's a way of skirting the. Uh, it's a way of skirting the NFA laws. Uh, the problem is uh, the second there's a hole in that solvent trap, it's a silencer in, in ATF's law, and then you, so then you are subject to uh, uh, you know federal law. Uh, that's a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine, a ten year prison sentence in federal prison. Not uh, worth it. It's not worth it. No, it's not. And they're just quite frankly, they're not that effective. Um, there's a reason why a well-engineered silencer is expensive. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's – I'm personally of the opinion that uh, that silencers and short barrel rifles and certain other items should be removed from the National Firearms Act altogether and treated just as accessories. Um, you should be able to buy a silencer just like you buy a handgun. Um, you go in, you know, you fill out a forty four seventy three. If you got a concealed carry permit, awesome. Go straight away. If not, they call in a NICS background check. Boom, you're done. Um, the United States is, is kind of unique in that we're the only country that allows the ownership of silencers while simultaneously regulating them in the manner that we do. Um, Great Britain, for example, is probably has the most stringent among the most stringent gun laws in, in the world. It'll take you a year to get a twenty two rifle to shoot pests in your garden. Yeah. But upon graining of that firearm permit and you go in to pick up your 22 rifle the shopkeep will browbeat you into buying a moderator 
Really? To shoot past in your garden so you don't disturb so your so you don't disturb your neighbors. Yeah. Um other countries, New Zealand, Australia, um uh, many of the European nations, uh, obviously Great Britain as I've as I've just made an example, they all uh recognize sound suppressors for what they are, which is a noise pollution control device. It is basically off operator hearing protection. That's what it is. Sure. And uh, we don't see it that way. Uh, in 1934, when the National Firearms Act came into being, uh, the silencers um, were originally not part of it. But you had, um, you had some game officers uh, that believed they could be used. While, they would never, while it had never happened, they believed it could be a tool for poachers. And it just simply wasn't the fact. Um, if you look at, if you go back and look at, Teddy Roosevelt's um, administration. Uh, Teddy was famous for going hunting all mm-hmm. over the place. Well, Teddy used to shoot a silenced Winchester lever action rifle in the backyard of the White House. That far back? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And they were wholly unregulated then because they were hearing protection devices. You don't have to wear, you don't have to wear right. an ear pro. Just screws on the end it of the gun. It just screws and, on the yeah. end of the gun. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and some like states said, have tried to like make it where you could manufacture one yourself and don't leave the there's, state. Uh, there, Kansas did that. Texas has done that. Um, the problem with that is is it, it's real similar. If you want to, you know, if you want to draw an analogy, it's actually real similar to the marijuana laws. A lot of states have legalized marijuana for both medical purposes or for recreational purposes. But guess what? It's still federally illegal, and you know you have the supremacy clause. So a lot of these states, and Kansas, like I said, being the first one, um, there's there's some guys in, in Kansas that decided they were going to make silencers to, for Kansas residents and everything else. Well, the ATF came in, shut them down, indicted them. And the state of Kansas isn't helping these guys in the court really? of law. Yeah, they're not. Um, and so I'm kind of – I'm not going to – Arkansas actually has a similar law as well. Um I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, You know, it's, it's not um, the federal stuff isn't worth it to me. Um, And, and I do business all over the United States. I don't just do business in Arkansas. Um, We have, we do a ton of law enforcement business, um, particularly entry teams for SWAT, you know, SWAT guys and stuff like that. But, and because I do business all over the United States, I wouldn't risk um, doing that, you know, doing that for in-state customers because I know they're going to come after me and then I lose, I lose my outside business as well. Sure. So it's, but yeah, there, there are some states that, that have attempted to do that. I wish that just, they would, it's just like having, they're eventually going to have to address the federal prohibition on marijuana for the same reason. Um, there's so many places that have legalized it now, and there's so many places that are trying to do away with federal gun control laws that you might as well address some of these things. And, and again, I, I'm one of those people that think that uh, that silencers should be pulled off off of the National Firearms Act. They're a uh, they're an accessory. They're they're hearing protection. They're not assassins' tools. They're not poachers' tools. Are they used? Sure, but so is every other firearm. Um, the regulation is prohibitive to ownership, unfortunately. 
if somebody wants to own one, wants to buy a suppressor from ArmTac, what's the process? If you are a resident of the state of Arkansas, you can come into ArmTac. We will sell you our silencer. We will assist in doing your paperwork completely. That includes doing your photographs, your fingerprint cards, your ATF Form 4 submission. Uh, we're currently doing the ATF e-forms, which is an online submission. Uh you pay a $200 uh, transfer tax, essentially, to, uh, to the U.S. government for the privilege of owning that item. And that is per item. Uh, it is tied to the serial number of the item. So you do all of that and wait six to eight, six to ten months um, for ATF to get around to doing your paperwork. And I think we've, we've had the bureaucracy discussion um, and red tape discussion already. Yeah. But uh, once your paperwork is approved, uh, they send it back to me. They issue you a U.S. Treasury tax stamp with the serial number of that item on it. At that point, it is transferred to you. You come pick up your, your silencer from us. And you're good to go. And you're good to go, yeah. Uh, you, do fill out a, uh, you do fill out a 4473 when you pick up, a, uh, pick up the silencer uh, because – ATF does consider, even though it's not a firearm, ATF considers it a firearm. So you have to fill out a 4473 even after you get your NFA paperwork back. But, you know, that stays in our possession. So I want to have you tell the story of the Thompson that got away. Because I find this just kind of fascinating that this happened to you. Of course, people, they know what a Thompson is. It's the old gangster uh, gun, the the Saving Private Ryan gun. Yep. And you owned one at one point. I, I still own one, but I owned a, uh, I owned a very particular one at one time. Um, when I worked for Don, um, back in the day, Don had bailed out a good friend of his out of some legal trouble and this guy uh, was an author and, and a Thompson collector, and he had written a, a seminal work on the Thompson submachine gun. His name was Roger Cox. And uh, Don bought, I'd say, probably a third of his collection, probably 25 guns or more. And when I started working for Don at 16, he probably still had 10 or 12 of these guns left. He had bought them in the early 80s. And I always gravitated toward one particular Thompson. And out of all the Thompsons that he had, this was the roughest Thompson there. It was missing the rear sight. It had a chunk broken out of, uh, <laughs> out of the pistol grip. It, it had this gray streak across the top of it. Somebody had taken an electric pen and written numbers on the top of it. It was just, you know, I, I never really knew anything about this gun, but I was drawn to it. Well, I'd go in there and fondle it every single day that I worked, and much to Don's annoyance. And finally, he said, why don't you just buy that gun? Well, it was $4,200 in the early 90s, and I wasn't $4,200 rich in the early 90s. And, uh, but he said, well, I'll, I'll, take it out of your, I'll take it out of your pay. And I said, okay. So it took me a couple of years to pay for this gun. And, and by the time I turned 21 and could transfer it, it, it had been paid for. And so... I, uh, I transferred it and upon getting my form four back, Don pulls, uh, uh, pulls a book and a bunch of paperwork out of his bottom drawer of his desk. And the book is Roger's book on the Thompson. And this gun happened to be, uh, the dust jacket inside of the dust jacket photo. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, which was neat. And then there was a chapter on gangster Thompson's, uh, in that book and my gun 
was in that. And it turned out this gun uh, was originally purchased at an Osco drugstore on 4th Avenue in New York City by some mob attorney. We don't know where it spent its time. But the uh, it turned out the guy that uh, that it wound up being taken off of was a member of Dillinger's bank heist gang. Wow. And this gun, now we don't know whether this gun ever saw time with Dillinger himself, but uh, this guy was one of Dillinger's guys. And when Dillinger was killed, this guy went on a, this guy decided he wasn't done robbing banks, so he went and robbed a, a bank in, in New Jersey. And uh, when he came out of the bank, he was met with a hail of gunfire from the police. And the gray stripe across the top of, uh, the top of that Thompson was a bullet. Uh, it was a lead thirty eight special bullet from a police officer's revolver, um, and they popped this guy yeah. many, many, many times. And he dropped that Thompson and busted a chunk out of the grip and broke the lime and rear sight off of it. And the police department in question, they had electro-pinned the case number and, and the police department and everything on the top of the receiver. Well, all this was heavily documented. And uh, I had that gun for, for quite a while, and I got real big into racing cars. Um, as you know, I'm a, I'm a Corvette guy. Oh, yeah. And I started, we started racing, drag racing, as well as running the Silver State Classic and doing autocross events and everything else, and, and I just got really big into it. And I had a pretty significant collection of, of machine guns at the time, and I sold about half of that collection in order to finance my racing because I'm stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's funny now, but Uh, tell us what kind of numbers that Thompson that you, so I sold that, I sold that Thompson for $35,000, but you had bought it for $4,200, but I sold it for, for 35,000. And this was in the early two thousands. It was, um, and, and again, you know, it had significant history with it and it, it, you know, it was, it, it was a documented, it was a heavily documented gun. That gun sold a few years later. I saw for in the $50,000 range. And then in, I think it was either 2018 or 2019. I can't, I, I can't remember exactly the year. Uh, I was perusing a, a James D. Julia auction catalog. And lo and behold, there it is. Ah. And that gun wound up selling for just shy of $90,000. Oh and my. yeah, I have a little um, sick. <laughs> oh, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit queasy just sitting here talking about it right now. It's, uh, I have, I've made a lot of dumb moves and, and financial mistakes in my life that may be, uh, among the pinnacle of them right there. And, you know, it was, it was a neat gun. Uh, it was, it was actually a pretty rough gun, uh, shockingly. Um, I have a, I have a 101 year old Colt. 1921 Thompson now, and that's what this one was. This was a Colt 1921 Thompson. Uh, but I've got a Colt 1921 Thompson now that's in 95% condition. This thing is absolutely pristine. It's a beautiful gun. Uh, but it'll sell for 50 grand less than, than, than what this gangster gun did just because it was a documented gangster gun. And, you know, there, are, uh, I think we've had the discussion of the movie guns and everything yeah, else. There's, there's that. significant, you know, there's some, there's actually some significant, um, guns out there. You know, there's, there's Thompson's that are tied to gangsters. There's, 
Um, there's movie guns, uh, as, as you and I have discussed, Stembridge gun rentals was real big. Well, back in the, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, up until May 18th of 1986, as a matter of fact, um, all of these movie houses, when they needed a machine gun, they made them, they made one and it was a transferable like red Dawn. Yeah. Red Dawn. I mean, all those were transferable machine guns. Those weren't post 86, what we call a post 86 dealer sample gun. Those were transferable to civilian individual machine guns. And so the movie industry did this for years and years and years up until, like I said, May 18th of 1986, when the Hughes amendment to the McClure Volkmer act uh, came out and, uh, and killed the further production of civilian transferable machine guns. Um, it was pretty significant. So all of the movie guns that you would see, like Commando, your oh, favorite yeah. movie, oh, yeah. um, Red Dawn, you know, the early Rambo movies, a lot of these movies that used machine guns in them, these machine guns were almost all transferable to civilian machine guns. Um, I I own a Mini Uzi that was a, uh, that was a Delta Force gun. Chuck Norris probably Chuck, used that. I, well, I don't know about that, but um, but I do know it was in. I, I do know that it was in the history. It, it was in uh, in Delta Force. It was in some other movie too. I can't remember what it was, but uh, that gun came from Stembridge Gun Rentals. Now, when machine guns got as expensive as they did, starting in in the late nineties, early two thousands, um, the values just went exponentially up and of course like i said they go up 10 to 15 percent a year now they're great investment but when they started doing that all of the movie prop houses uh liquidated all of their transferable inventories so pretty much everything you see in movies now is is what what we call a dealer sample uh which is one manufactured after uh, may 19th of 1986 and uh, can only be used by a Title II manufacturer like myself, a Class Three dealer with a demonstration letter from law enforcement or a governmental or law enforcement organization. So they can legally manufacture this gun knowing they're just going to take it over on a movie set and yeah. film with it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I can make, if I want 10,000 M60s, I can make one, I can make 10,000 M60s on a single form with consecutive serial numbers. I can't go buy one without a law enforcement demonstration letter to satisfy ATF now. I got you. But I can make 10,000 of them. It's kind of interesting <laughs> what's out there. Like, we know Predator and Terminator oh, yeah. 2. There's a few miniguns out there that civilians could own. There are, there are. A, there are about... Five or six, No, maybe? I think there's about 30. Uh, there's about 30 original GE M134 um, miniguns uh, out there on the transferable registry. Um the last transferable minigun I saw sale was $660,000. Oh, my goodness. So, And I imagine they're pretty close to a million dollars now. And that's that's all well and good. The problem with those is the um, the housing itself, which is which is actually what the transferable part is, is a consumable. So, oh, you know, you've got a, million, you got a million-dollar gun that's got a component that's literally the register part that will eventually wear out. And um, you can't that, replace that. And you can't replace that part. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a neat thing to look at. Mini guns are cool. Um, I fired quite a few of them. They're, they're one of those guns that is kind of a bucket list gun for a lot of people. But then once they shoot them, they're like, eh, yeah. And that's kind of the way I was. I was kind of like, eh, eh. 
I you put know. a 200 round uh, John Cena. I'll never forget. Was it uh, the Hot Springs? We used to have huge machine gun. Shoot. I remember that. Yeah, two, two times a year, huge machine gun shooting Hot Springs at a place called the Farm. Bob Warren's guy's name, and uh, he put on a huge machine gun shoot. Well, there was a Title II manufacturer, very well known, named Jonathan Arthur Senior. John Cena. Yep. They used to come up every year to that machine gun shoot. He's really good friends with Don, and he bring crazy stuff like a minigun. Mm-hmm. And you know, nobody had nobody showed up with mini guns back in the day and he had a quad 50 and he would ground fire this quad 50 and you talk about impressive that was the most impressive thing i've ever seen somebody ground firing a quad 50 at a car body which is like an anti-aircraft it is thing. An, absolutely an anti air yeah. it's got four 50 caliber browning machine guns all four of them shooting at the same time wow and imagine ground firing that that's 633 grain bullet coming out of that thing at 2800 feet per second surprise you're just, not deaf Oh, I'm. I am. That's why. I, that's why I make silencer, Scott. Yeah, exactly. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> but, hey, but yeah, Senior used to bring that gun up here. I shot that gun. It was a 200 round belt, and it went in less than a second. And that was the biggest letdown I've ever had in my life because I'm just like, I just shot a hundred dollars worth of ammo in, in one second. Oh, in like seven tenths of a second. It was like. <laughs> and I looked at it around. I was like, Why isn't the gun running? And John looks at me and goes, It's out. And, and that there's was a it. yeah, there's a there's a pile of brass and a pile of links on the ground. I was just like, well, that was terrible, over <laughs> underwhelming. It was very underwhelming. You got to wonder where Dirty Harry's forty four is. I'm sure we could find it. Clint probably has it. He either probably has it or it is in a museum somewhere. There's a lot of really you know cool guns that that actually do wind up in museums. The uh, the Texas Ranger Museum, for example, has uh, has a lot of uh, Bonnie and Clyde's guns. Um, they've got one of the cut down BARs uh, that Clyde had. They've got um, they've got Bonnie's little uh, Remington Model 11 20 gauge that that was a, a cut down gun that Clyde called a whip it gun because you just whip it out. Yeah. And uh, so there's there's some pretty significant guns that are that are in museums now. I know the John Wayne Museum has a lot of his uh, you know his guns that he ran in the movies. Um, the the Firearms Museum, actually up in Berryville, if you've never been there. Never been. Uh, the Sanders Museum is really, really awesome. And they've got a pretty good collection up there. Um, so if if you've never been up, up to Berryville, you know, you want to go up, stay, stay at Eureka with your significant under, other for the weekend, run over to Berryville. You can take a tour through Wilson Combat. You can take a tour through Nighthawk, Scattergun Technologies. But you can also go to the Sanders Museum. And the Sanders Museum is really neat. That's and so and cool. has a really, really great gun collection. Well, thank you, Jeb, for being on the show. Tell us again where people can go and check out what ArmTac makes. ArmTacUSA.com or on Facebook at ArmTac Guns. Um, yeah, man, we uh, we do a little bit of it all, but, but we make things quiet. Man, thank you so much. <laughs> you we'll bet, see you Scott. guys next time on Guatney Unplugged.